visited me, reprieved from a terrible stomachache for two sermons, finished preaching, and then he's like, all right, Mark, back to business. <laughs> so, I'm hoping I make it through it tonight. Uh, it's, I'm going to that pizza place tomorrow with a lawyer, a policeman, and a doctor. And anyone else who wants to come and see that happen. <laughs> I'm ordering one of those pizzas. I'm going to find out and get to the bottom of this. So anyway, um, I would like to draw your attention to Philippians chapter 3. If you could turn there. Philippians chapter 3. And we will uh, be reading from uh, verse 1 to 11 of a well-known section in God's Word. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the fresh flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has no reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, so that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Well, let us pray. Our Father, please help us now to hear your word and to love your word and to know your word properly. Rid from our souls and minds anything false and bring into it only that which is true. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. One of the great themes of Scripture, and there's no one singular theme in my mind, there are uh, a host of themes that all work together. But one of the themes in Scripture in terms of humans, and especially God's people, is the theme of uh, how God will have us at a place where we are exalted. Now this may be, in the case of Christ, a good exaltation. It may be, in the case of Paul, a bad exaltation. But it is a type of human uh, privilege that you have where we would say you are uh, high here. And then what you find is that God uh, very often brings such people low. There's humiliation. And then after there's humiliation, as long as it is God's humiliation, there is inevitably exaltation again. Uh, you could see this maybe with Adam exalted in the garden the head of humanity, a prophet, priest, and king himself, one who is called the Son of God, falls into sin, but then receives the promise of Jesus Christ in Genesis 3.15. And so he is delivered from the depths of his sin, high, low, high. You could look at Job 
Job starts out in the book of Job, and he is a godly man, he is a wealthy man, he is a man who has received God's blessing, and so Satan sees this and goes to God and says, does Job serve you for no reason? Is it only because things are well with him? And so what does God do? He brings Job low. But by the end of the book, Job returns to exaltation. God blesses him again with family and with with uh, animals and with wealth and riches and uh, more importantly, an even greater sense of who God is. And I suppose you could look at others. Moses was born in Pharaoh's household. He was the so-called prince of Egypt. He had access to all of the great education and other Uh, wonderful things that Egypt could offer in terms of the world. But what happened to Moses? He chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God. And then God made him and fashioned him over a period of 40 years where he would bring God's people into the promised land, a type of exaltation. You can see it in David uh, and you can see it in Joseph. Joseph receives a dream that his family are going to bow down to him. He receives the coat of many colors. He has uh, this royal robe, but then he is brought into a pit and he goes through many trials, many tribulations, and then one day he is saving his family and the nation of Israel. You have exaltation in a certain sense. You have humiliation and you have exaltation. So I trust that's enough to convince you at least there's somewhat of a pattern in scripture there. I think we see this in Philippians chapter 3. Now you would obviously see this in Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 to 11, but people miss that it actually continues in Philippians chapter 3. Paul is hot and bothered. He says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing to you is no trouble for me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Whenever Paul is defending the gospel, he uses very strong language. And he uses his strongest language when the gospel is at stake. Sometimes he can be very patient and understanding. But when it comes to the gospel and its purity, he does not mince words. These false Christian, allegedly Christian teachers were promoting and preaching a doctrine of Christ plus something. In this case, circumcision. And what's interesting is Paul speaks of these Judaizers, these Jewish people who said you must have Christ and circumcision as dogs. And this has a religious connotation. It was a reference to Gentiles. So Jews have become Gentiles by their theology. He also calls them evildoers. Just as he speaks of those who are workers of iniquity, anyone who does works in Christ's name, but they are not works appointed by Christ, are taking the name of the Lord in vain. And so he has strong language for them. They are dogs, they are evildoers, and they mutilate the flesh because what they're doing has no actual value for the body. They are mutilators. Now, he contrasts, however, true Christians in verse 3. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So here's the true circumcision, the irony of true circumcision. Gentiles are now true Jews, and Jews have become Gentiles. We are the true circumcision. And you see the marks of the people of God? 
I think in verse 3 you have basically an implicit Trinitarianism. They worship God in the Spirit. They glory in Christ. And they put no confidence in the flesh. That last part where they put no confidence in the flesh. They are those who live as true children of the Father. So they are true Christians, these Gentiles. And notice Paul then talks about fleshly confidence in verses 4 to 6. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And notice how he overstates time and time again, flesh, flesh, flesh. He's trying to talk about life outside of Christ, which is fleshly living. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, a tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. And Paul still says he has no reason to have confidence in the flesh. If anyone had reason to put confidence in the flesh, it was Paul. But what he's trying to say is outside of Christ, there is absolutely nothing that you can do to give you any standing before God. If you could, Paul would be your guy. And he is disavowing that in the strongest possible language. Notice there's seven characteristics. The first four are privileges he has by birth. So circumcision on the eighth day. Paul is not a pagan of the nation of Israel. He's not even a second class convert. He was born from within Israel. He didn't become an Israelite like some. He was born of the nation of Israel. He was the tribe of Benjamin, which was a distinguished tribe. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. That is to say, he did not adopt Hellenistic Greek ways in his living and thinking. He was a Pharisee, and they believed themselves to be most faithful to Scripture over and against the Sadducees. He also persecuted the church. And here's the intense irony. He is condemning where he is exalting. So at one time, he was exalting in the fact that well, hey, I was so great, I even persecuted the church, but here he is now condemning that. And then he says blameless. In other words, not sinless, but if you check his record, you wouldn't see, oh, Paul killed three people, stole two oranges, and so on and so forth. He had a clean record in terms of outward conformity. He was extremely moral. That is why the commandment that provoked in Paul The sense of his unworthiness and the sense of his need for Christ was actually the tenth because that deals with the heart. Covetousness, seizing the opportunity. It produced the commandment, all forms of covetousness within him. But outwardly, he was blameless. So we might call that Paul's exaltation. Even though it's fleshly, it's Paul's exaltation. He's up here. If there is a picture of a true religious person and all the good they thought they could do, Paul is that person. But notice what happens in verses 7 to 8. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Here you see the down movement. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Whatever other attainments he may have listed in here, everything else is a loss too. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things. He suffered the loss of his prestige and his social standing among the Jewish people. 
He suffered the loss of even his physical well-being by getting beaten. He suffered the loss of his emotional well-being by even being persecuted, not just by Judaizers, but even the people of God at times. He suffered the loss of all things. And when it comes to those attainments he has, he considers them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So you have privilege, then you have death, and then you have exaltation. The loss of everything. It's loss, loss, loss for Christ. But then, notice something else. This term where you see there, I consider, or I count them as rubbish. It's a Greek word, skubalon. Um, I remember our old friend uh, Gus. He used to live just down there. Uh, most of you won't know Gus because you're, you're newbies to the church. But he was an old Greek guy. And uh, he was a wild man, let me tell you. Uh, and uh, I could tell you many stories. And uh, so could Paul, actually, and Bernus, yes, yes. And a uh, few others of us here. Uh, and they'd be wonderful stories, let me tell you. If I needed to continue a sermon because I was ending too soon, I would just tell you the stories. But alas... I remember him talking about the chickens getting all of the rubbish food. And the rubbish food he used to call skibala, skibala. And I says, oh, that probably is from the root of skubalon, all the rubbish. And it was all the worst food that they would just throw to these chickens. And the chickens didn't care what they ate. And they would eat this skibala, skibala. Paul is saying that all of these attainments, all of these wondrous things that he possessed virtue by virtue of birth or even by his religious fanaticism are skibala. They are worthy to be not even thrown to the chickens. And that term, says one commentator, conveys both revulsion and worthlessness in this context. In Hellenistic Greek, it seems to stand somewhere between uh, two words, and they're not actually words I can say. However, due to English sensibilities and considering the readership, a softer term such as dung or uh, something else, rubbish, has been deemed most appropriate. Paul wants to use a word that conveys the absolute horror of religious works apart from Christ. And he chooses perhaps the most graphic word. Just like Isaiah chose the word, word uh, menstrual cloth in Isaiah. That was the most graphic word you could use because of its religious context in the Old Testament. That was someone who was unclean. That was someone who could not have sexual relations. That was someone who was basically in a state where they were viewed as untouchable when they were menstruating because of the purity laws. And so what Paul is doing here is his counterpart to Isaiah. And he's saying all of these things are skivala, skubalon. But then notice what he does in verse 9 to 11. He gains Christ, and when you gain Christ then, whatever humiliation, whatever suffering, whatever lowliness you may have in that context, you will also be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him in the power of His resurrection and share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Now, there are a lot of spiritual blessings, but three of the predominant spiritual blessings are justification, sanctification, and glorification. 
And you see in verse 9, justification. That justification, that righteousness that Paul is glorying in is actually a righteousness that comes to him through faith. Faith is the instrument that receives the righteousness of another, namely Christ's righteousness. And so the righteousness he has in a massive twist is not actually in things that he has done, but in things that Christ did. You also will see the issue of sanctification in verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him. That is sanctification, that through trials and tribulations you become like him in his death, in that humiliation. But then you also have glorification, verse 11. And this is where the high movement finishes. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. What's Paul's concern? It is to strengthen Christian assurance. And notice, he doesn't just say, well, it doesn't matter what we do. He is actually saying, while my righteousness is by faith in Christ, and I receive that righteousness, I still have to live in this world And I need to share in his sufferings that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And when you attain the resurrection from the dead and you become conformed to the image of Christ, there's no actual greater glory you can then receive once you become like Christ. So your exaltation as a Christian is the greatest exaltation that God can offer you. There's no greater blessing God could pull out than to say, you will be like my son, internally, externally, both in body and soul. So I remember as a child in South Africa, um, there was a commercial and uh, it was about a soft drink called Mellow Yellow. Did anyone ever have Mellow Yellow? Yeah. Probably the most awful drink up there with allegedly gluten-free pizza. And... um, (laughs) Or it might have killed everything inside the gluten, but I I digress. Uh, I remember as a young kid being struck by this uh, phrase, what goes up must come down. And that was burned into my psyche as a child. And as I looked around at the world, I noticed what goes up must come down. Whether I kicked a ball up or whether I went in a plane, it's going to come down one way or another, uh, hopefully the nice way, uh, but it's coming down. And uh, I was able to see this principle ingrained into my life. But actually, the Christian faith teaches us that what goes up must come down. But when it comes down, it must necessarily go up. In other words, the end is not humiliation, but exaltation. The end is glory, and it can only be that way. So one thing that I think we miss here, Philippians 3, usually when it's preached on, gets taken up with the issue of justification and how Paul is trying to show that doctrine, and certainly he is. But we also forget that Paul is taking what he has just written in chapter 2 concerning Christ about his high-low-high movement, and he is attributing it to himself. And any faithful reader of the Old Testament will know that that was indeed the case with so many And so the one point of application I have for you sitting here tonight is do you think you will be exempt from your low movement? The answer is no. As soon as you stop living in the flesh, you are as good as humiliated, in a sense. 
But as soon as you are as good as humiliated on God's terms, you are as good as exalted. And there's no real way of getting out of that either. I also think it's worth saying that this doesn't have to be a case where you have a certain childhood where it's exalted and then you go through humiliation and then you die and you're glorified to be like Christ. This type of movement can actually happen in our lives. There are times when things are going well, where our spouse seems to actually love us, our children are decent, your job is going well, you have reasonably good health and so on. Things go well. But how long do things really go well for any lengthy period of time? Do we not know that somewhere around the corner there will be sufferings, there will be trials? And what often happens is that God brings these to us so that we may yearn for the true good life, the true exaltation, the one that comes in glory. Because the longer we are up here in this day-to-day living as Christians, the harder it is for us to walk with Christ. With many sufferings in the case of Job and Joseph and our Lord Jesus Christ, was actually God's imprimatur on their lives of how much He actually loved them. And so, I've never heard anyone come into my office as a Christian and you say, well, how do you know you're a Christian? I've never heard anyone say, well, I've actually had such a difficult life. I've had so many sufferings, I simply must be loved by God. But that could be a very good answer, an atypical answer, but one that if Jesus Christ were to say, how do you know you are the Son of God? He could point to God's continued care and provision for him in a context of suffering on behalf of his people. Let us pray. O Lord our God, thank you for your word and for these wondrous realities. And if we could stay high and simply skip over that humiliation, all of us would, because we hate humiliation. We love exaltation. But help us to love exaltation on your terms, and to trust that where there are valleys, there will be peaks. And when we get to that peak where we stand before you, it will be a peak never to be reversed, one that we can claim great assurance that we will forever Be like our Savior Christ in body and soul, in whose name we pray. Amen.